0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can celebrate this meal that even foreshadows the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, where we can celebrate with Jesus in glory. But in the meantime, we do uh, recognize that until Christ returns, that in our celebration of this meal, in our gathering as a church, in our work to advance the gospel, that that we are actually preaching, in a sense. We are proclaiming that Jesus has died. He's died for sinners, died as an atonement for their sins, and that if people turn to him and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they can be saved. And so I pray that you would help us to live with that in mind, that we would be on mission, heralding the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, but doing so knowing that Jesus is coming soon. So help us to live even with that expectancy of his return and that we would glorify you with our lives even as we even take up our, our little offering here. We, we pray that it would be used for your glory, for the furtherance of the gospel, and even for meeting even the needs of people, even in our church, uh, so that we would bear a faithful witness as we await even the return of Christ. So, continue to help us open our lips to declare your praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. Matthew chapter 24. This is the very Word of God. Jesus left the temple and was going away when His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. But He answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As He sat on the Mount of Olives, The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars. And rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. And put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we ask that You would help us now as we consider Your Word and we consider it In a context, even in our own experience, of wars and rumors of wars, of the threats of famine, of what are called natural disasters. Lord, we think of those affected by Hurricane Ian down in Florida. I pray especially for Sanibel Community Church down there and Jeremy Rennie, who has been at our church before, and how his family is out of their home and his church, is out of their church building. Lord, we just pray for mercy on the people down in Fort Myers, Florida and in that area. Lord, we recognize even the great needs throughout the world, even of your people. We pray that the gospel would continue to be proclaimed near and far we thank you for the ministries of Mile One Mission and 20 Schemes, even as they came and presented on Friday. We, we pray for the advance of the gospel in Newfoundland, that dark island, that island with so little gospel witness. We pray also for Scotland and how many are there who have, in such a, such a Christian heritage in that country, and so many there are, 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 who live there and who have not heard the gospel. We think of this country of Canada and for all of our vast wealth and riches and resources, so many do not know the name of Jesus Christ except as a swear word. Lord, there is such great need in this land, a need for the gospel to be proclaimed, for churches to be planted, pastors and missionaries to be raised up, parents to teach their children in the fear and admonition of the lord oh lord we pray that you would bring a great national repentance to us revive us again lord we need your work in this country and lord forgive us for the ways that we have not looked with expectancy to your soon return lord jesus come quickly but we pray that we would have our eye upon you and that we would not act as if you were not there or worse yet, that you do not exist. Holy Father, I pray by your Spirit you would stir us by your Word, even as we look for this brief time at its infallibility and inerrancy and its authority and sufficiency for all of us right now. Come and meet us, we pray, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're like me, I, I rarely hear people today who speak in any type of fear or with any type of uh, being afraid of the future and in particular world events that would signal the last judgment. I, I just don't hear people talking like that anymore. Instead, most often what I hear about are the the what is said to be these horrible ecological choices that we are making that will bring about the end of the world so i hear that all the time uh i i would call that a secular last judgment and so that's been predicted if you go back it was predicted that the end of the world we'd have an ecological last judgment in 1977 and then in 1990 and then in 2010. And now it's 2024 or 2030. Unless we repent and change our ways. And you've heard this repeatedly. But the fact is that very few of us are living in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is just not on people's radar. And I would argue it's actually not really on the radar of a lot of people in the church the fact is the second coming has been seemingly delayed now I think if we thought about the second coming more we would fear God more we'd fight sin more we'd celebrate more we'd give thanks to God more I believe we would have more fun. Surprise, surprise. Like, you know, everybody's not into having fun, I know. Not this crowd. No fun here. Fun must be bad. No, we'd have more fun because we'd see each day as a gift from God. It's a gift, and we'd enjoy it. We'd suffer better. Because then we'd put our sufferings in the framework of God's big picture, this big tapestry, the big canvas of all of God's creative work and His redeeming power. we put it all in that framework. But sadly, in in my estimation, we've nearly lost our expectation of the end. All of us. We're just, we're just looking at what's right in front of our nose. You know, what's, what's the calendar say about today, about tomorrow, and that's about it. What's this week? What's on the news feed? That's it. We've nearly lost our expectation of the end, and we are not expecting the unexpected. We just don't live like that. So what I briefly want to do... Attempt to be brief, is just to introduce a very important chapter in the Bible speaking about the end times. It's Matthew 24. I didn't read the whole chapter because we're going to actually address many of its sections here as I go along and just for the sake of time. And so I'm just going to give it a, a very summary treatment. And all I'm hoping for is that our desire to know Christ who is alive right now and who is coming again that will be awakened that we will all collectively have then this stirring to have in mind that christ not only is alive right now but he is coming again and then that then affects us and shapes us and changes us because right now and i and i know you and you know me the way we live, we act as if Christ is not coming back. We act as if today and my stuff today is all that matters. And we don't live in light of eternity and in light of Christ's second coming. So this breaks into basically four, four little sections. We'll look at the second coming of Christ. We'll look secondly at the end of the age. We'll look thirdly at this call to be faithful And fourthly, we'll see a a great divide, or as you have it in your bulletin, it'll be the coming, the end, the call, and the choice. The coming, the end, the call, and the choice. And I should be able to have everybody unhappy with me, as this will not be satisfactory to go a little bit over Matthew 24 in just the span of our short time here. But I'm just hoping to whet your appetite. Well, let's begin by seeing first, I want you to look there at verse 3. That's where I really want to zero in on is verse 3 and this question that the disciples ask. It says in verse 3, speaking of Jesus, as he sat on the Mount of Olives. So in Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, this is then called the Olivet Discourse. He sits on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, and look at that quotation, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So there's a couple of questions then under the heading, when will these things be? And the first sign is the sign that they're asking about, the sign of Christ's coming the second sign is the sign of the end of the age that's what they're asking about so the first of these two signs is the coming the greek word is the parousia and you've maybe heard that the parousia the coming it can refer to any kind of coming but in this context it's referring to the coming of christ now, Paul is going to start out giving an answer by not answering the question. I mean, that's kind of what Paul does often. Instead, from verses 4 through 28, he's going to prepare them for the answer by warning them about false teachers, even false messiahs, false Christs. So he answers first by not answering and saying, you've got to watch out for false Christs. And as we've been going through our series, you see there is actually a system of sin and there is, there is the devil and his minions who are actually at work. I don't know if my mic dropped out. Maybe it's okay. That they are actively involved in, pers- in, in putting forth these deceptions. But to get back to the parousia for Paul, or if I said Paul, uh, I, I Paul's answering. Paul's not answering. This is this is that's wrong. It's Jesus Himself. Wrong guy. Uh, so in order to get a sense of the parousia, we have to jump down to verse twenty-nine. Look look at verse twenty-nine. This is where Jesus gets into the details of what of what's going to happen with this coming, this parousia. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven, heavens will be shaken. Verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. So after all of these warnings, warnings about wars, rumors of wars, warnings about false Christ, warnings about persecution, about just general tribu- tribulation that's going on, then, then there's these, these intense events. And so immediately when we think about the context that, that Jesus is, suggest- is saying here, this context is one that we know well. Wars and rumors of wars. It's everywhere, right? We're, we're inundated, for example, with this war in Ukraine. You know that we're, we're t- all of this that's going on. The threat of war with China. Cyber war. Civil war. Wars everywhere. And so that reminds us that this then is the beginning of the end. Verse 8, these are the beginning of the birth pains. I'm reminded of Charles Wesley who wrote in his hymn, Lo, he comes with clouds descending. Yea, Amen, let all adore them all adore thee, high on thy eternal throne, Savior, take the power and glory, claim the kingdom for thine own. Oh, come quickly. Alleluia. Thou shalt reign and thou alone. So here is then, after this tribulation, is the coming, the parousia of the Son of Man to rule and reign. So the f- clear thing you see when there are all of those, you saw all of those future tenses, is this is certain. It will happen. It will. The sun, the sun will be dark, and the moon will not give its light. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They'll get. They will gather the elect. It's going to happen. It's a promise. It's certain. This is not left up to grabs. This is certain. And I would suggest for each of you and myself, I'm preaching myself, that the certainty of Christ's return is not something that we are clear about. Yes, I know notionally you will say, oh yes, of course Jesus is coming back. But the idea that He absolutely is coming back Instead, more of us have a sort of agnosticism. Oh, well, I, you know, it'll all kind of pan out. I don't really know. You just think of it very vaguely. There is a certainty to it all. You see there, verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's certain. That's that's the first thing to see about this parousia. But also, what is the manner of it? Not only is it certain and sure, but it is with power. Power and great glory there, verse 30. He is coming with power. This is no longer Jesus coming in obscurity. Jesus as a peasant. Jesus on the back of the donkey. This is Jesus coming in triumph on the war horse. This is Jesus coming in judgment. Jesus coming, exercising all of His prerogatives. Jesus having the weight of glory with Him. And yet, because of that, because that's what was expected, this coming is inherently delayed it's delayed D.A. Carson he noted that the disciples viewed the parousia as one event one event but Jesus is indicating that there will be a delay because because there's this stuff this tribulation all of these things are going to happen and then he will come so there's a delay and I think that was a great frustration and difficulty for many Jews in the first century. They couldn't imagine that the Messiah would come and that all of this wouldn't happen at that time. That there would be any kind of delay to the manner of this kingdom. For example, Malachi chapter 3.2 says, Who may abide the day of his coming? And it's viewed in the Old Testament as one event. But that is the mystery of the kingdom is that the one event seems to be divided in some way. That it is somehow, as the theologians will describe, it has been inaugurated, but it hasn't been consummated. That the kingdom has come and is yet to come. That Christ has come in his first advent, we celebrate at Christmas time, right? But we are talking about waiting for his second advent, his second coming. So Jesus is saying that his parousia is delayed. And yet, verse 27 For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means you need to expect the unexpected. You know, I know you can probably, you know, when when there's a lightning storm, you can, you know, you count the seconds, right? And the seconds are how many miles out the next strike's going to be, you know, until you hear the thunder and the strike, the lightning strike. You know, you do that stuff. But you don't know exactly. You don't know where lightning's going to hit. So you can expect it. It's a storm. Lightning's going to hit. But when exactly, you don't know. So you expect the unexpected. And that is how his coming is. So we need to live, Paul had it in, in, his, in his communion liturgy. We need to live with expectancy of Christ's return. But we don't know exactly when. And we'll continue to unpack this. But that's, that's talking about the coming. The coming of Christ, the parousia. That's the first part. What will be the sign of your parousia, your coming? But the second of the two signs is the sign back in, back in verse 3, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So, so what about the end of the age? What about that sign? Well, look at verse 32. We see We see here then a little mini parable. It's not like a a true parable. It's kind of a lesson story. Mini parable. And it's this little lesson about the fig tree. Jesus says in verse 32, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things... You know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Notice what's the emphasis of that little lesson story. It is on the idea of nearness. When you see things, when you see things happening... There will be a nearness to the end of the age. It will be close, just like the nearness of summer. Um, You know, we're kind of getting hoodwinked here, aren't we? It's October and the weather's been so great. And we think that, oh, maybe winter will never come. (laughs) But I can guarantee you, by the end of the month, we'll be like, oh, winter's too near. At least that's how I feel. You know it's coming you you it's not unexpected you you know it's coming but the idea no there there are things you will see that jesus is indicating to you and and then he says you know when you see all these things you know that he is near at the very gates he's there just like just like an invader laying siege he's you you know he's marching down the road but then all of a sudden no he's at the gates He's, he's surrounding you. He's there. And Jesus indicates that that generation, it's very interesting, that generation, they weren't going to die until these things take place. So, so there's going to be a start to all of this. The, the end is being inaugurated. The end is near. It's being inaugurated with that generation. And that means that Christ and His second coming is near. Not only, not only here as he's predicting this, going to the cross, but even he is near in his second coming. The disciples themselves would see this. They would see this beginning of the end. So that's a feature of the end of the age, is its nearness. But also, notice. In verse 36, there then is this this timing. Verse 36, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. You see, this this is the Father's prerogative. That He is the one who appoints that time. Not only the beginning of the end, but the end of the end and the coming of Jesus Christ, the Parousia. And so I so even, even the incarnate Son, according to the human nature, he didn't have an inside on the appointment, inside knowledge on the appointment of the Father, even to this information. And we saw last, last Sunday we looked at Galatians chapter 4, and we looked at the appointment of the Father in the little analogy with fathers and their kids. Of course, the appointment of the father is in the fullness of time. He sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law. That was that was that point of appointment. So is then the second coming. So there's this sense of nearness, this appointment and timing by the father's prerogative. But verse 44 there is a suddenness. Look at verse 44. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So there it is. You need to expect the unexpected. You, do, you, you, know, you think, well, I, I'm expectant and I've got it all calculated and I know when Jesus is coming back. And so you have this expectation and you expect it's going to happen the way you've got it plotted out. I've talked to a lot of people recently who because of world events, they think, they know that Jesus is coming back, you know, within a pretty, pretty narrow window. And I'm like, well, you need to be expectant, but he, he is going to come back in a manner that you do not expect. There's a suddenness to it, a surprise, So we need to expect the unexpected. And I believe some of the folks, and I used to be this, coming from more of a dispensational background, I will say, however, that they have this sense of expecting the unexpected. If they stay away from formulas and timelines, if they expect the unexpected, it's a good emphasis to have. And some people, by maybe rejecting some of the dispensational system, have also rejected that expectancy that we ought to have. So there's that suddenness and expecting the unexpected. But I want us to also recognize that there is this inauguration that we're already in process. And I want everybody to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, and then we'll come back and fill out some of these stories that I've skipped over. Hebrews chapter 9. And verse 26 because i'm trying to get at we're still looking at the end of the age its nearness its appointment its suddenness and the fact that it's already in process because maybe you don't think maybe you think oh well now it's the end times but it wasn't back then hebrews 9 26 pick up in verse 24 hebrews 9 24 this is really important this section track this hebrews 9 24 for Christ has, notice, notice just the, the tense of the verbs. Christ has entered not only into holy places made with hands. That would be like physical temples. Christ has entered not only into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ has entered into heaven on your behalf to appear before the presence of God on your behalf, representing you? Like, if you're a Christian believer, that is true for you. Verse 25 of Hebrews 9, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. How could he ever offer, if he's he's just doing it, offering the blood of bulls and calves, he'd still be doing it. But then it says at the end of verse 25, But as it is, he has appeared once for all, notice this, when? When When did he do it? at the end of the ages. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Well, what's that referring to? The sacrifice of himself. It's referring to the cross. So what this is indicating for us is that Jesus has inaugurated or set in motion or begun the final countdown of the end of the ages. And he didn't start it in 2022. He didn't start it in 1948, founding of the state of Israel. That's what that one is, for some of you. He didn't start it in 1517. Or even 70 A.D., the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. No, he inaugurated the end of the age at the cross. That's when he inaugurated it. So it's very important when we get into these discussions to get this so clear. The cross was the beginning of the end. The cross was the beginning of the end. When Jesus said, when he is hanging on the cross, when he said, it is finished, at that point, the old has passed away and the new has come to be fully consummated at his second coming in glory. But he has inaugurated the end of the age. So the result is then, and sometimes if you've been around here, you'll hear us talking this way, we can say that now we are in the already, awaiting the not yet We are in this, as it were, this overlap of the ages, still in this sinful world. And yet, we belong to the future. We belong to the consummated age. That's where we belong, even if we're still muddling along here in this fallen world. So, to be clear then, thinking about the end of the age... The second advent and the end of the ages is near. It's already upon us. And its consummation is, is so close. It's unknowable. It's going to be sudden, yet it's all already been set in motion, already been inaugurated. And so what's the conclusion? If I can just repeat myself, is to expect the unexpected. And this is the tension that we should all have even, even spiritually speaking, kind of staying on our toes. You, you, can't, you can't betray your marriage vows while you're thinking about Christ coming again to judge the living and the dead. You can't cheat on your taxes when you consider Christ coming again and seeing all and judging all, aware of all. It has a powerful motivating factor, knowing he is coming again. Nor is it that you th- can think, oh, this world is so awful, I'm so frustrated, I'm so cynical. Well, if you, if you know that you can stand before the Lord in his judgment, because you're robed not in a righteousness of your own, but in Christ's righteousness, then it's then you can say, come, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but I'm robed in Christ. I'm okay. Not because of me, but because Christ is. And I can stand with boldness before the throne of God as we sing so often. I can have confidence. So we see then the parousia, the end of the age. Now we have to see What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Why is Jesus telling us this, telling the disciples this, and telling us? What do we do? Already, back in verse 13, it tells us the call. What's the call? Verse 13, going back to Matthew 24. Verse 13 of Matthew 24. The one who endures How long? To the end. The one who endures to the end will be saved. This isn't isn't then you're saved by your works. This is just describing the characteristics of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Those who believe keep on believing. And specifically, what are they doing? What What are these folks doing who are enduring to the end? Well, it indicates what they're busy with in verse 14 of Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then what? The end will come. So it's all going to happen, but that is what people are busy with. Testifying to the gospel, supporting the advance of the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. The very gospel-centered, even as that term might be abused. But that's what it is. It's putting forth the gospel, proclaiming it. That's why you come to church, to hear the gospel proclaimed. That's why you're equipped, so that you go out in your workplace and you share the gospel. You testify to the gospel. You live in view of the gospel. Jump down to verse 45. Jesus is calling us to be faithful, but he illustrates this with one of the many stories here. He illustrates it with another little mini parable of two servants in verses 45 and following. Two servants, the wise servant and the wicked servant. He says in verse 45, "...who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household?" to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant Will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is a call, obviously not to be the wicked servant, but to be the wise servant. The point, the point of this section, that Jesus little this little mini parable is verse 46, blesses that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Just, just think about that. You're, you, are you being faithful? Again, faithfulness. Not, not sinlessness, but just faithful. If you sin, part of being faithful is I sin, I repent of my sin, I confess my sins to God, I enjoy the, the forgiveness of my sins, and I move on in obedience. It's not sinlessness, but it is faithfulness. I keep looking to the Lord. I keep following the Lord. And now it's time for a ubiquitous Johnny Cash illustration. But Johnny Cash, in his song, When the Man Comes Around, and and there's this threat of when the man comes around, he's going to check on you. Are you going to be faithful? You know, the hair on your arm will stand up. At the terror in each sip and in each sup, will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground? So you can enjoy the cup that's offered, the cup of the marriage supper of the lamb. Is that what you are wanting? Or are you going to drink the cup of his wrath? It's one or the other. You can't avoid it. You, you got to take one or the other. And what does the wicked servant say, thinking about when the man comes around? Verse 48, the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. My master is delayed. If I was to describe the political scene, the sociological scene, men, manners, climates, councils, governments, friends, neighbors, family, all those who do not know Jesus Christ, what would be the feature that would describe them? Well, they would say, I mean, they wouldn't admit it, but this is how they live. They would think the master is delayed. While the cat's away, mice play, right? Come on. He's not coming. I, I can do my own thing. But the man's coming around, and there is a judgment there, coming. So how will you abide, Malachi? How will you abide in the day of his coming? Are you robed in the protection and righteousness of Christ? Or as Paul read from Psalm 5, do you have Christ's own righteousness as the shield to protect you from God? Not not just the shield to protect you from Satan, the shield to protect you from God when the man comes around. And he's going to come when you don't expect. Like, nobody's going to expect it. At least the Christians, we're expecting the unexpected, but we have security knowing that. Are you being faithful in the midst of this? And this leads me then to The great divide, really God's dividing choice. We talk lots about free will with people, but everybody forgets God's free will. God's the one who has free will. He is absolutely sovereign. God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Go back and look at verse 31. I know we're jumping around, but I'm just trying to summarize here. He says in verse 31 of Matthew 24 that he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his what? His elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. You see, there's a great divide, isn't there? It's based on God's choice. There is, in fact, a distinct assembly of chosen ones, of the elect. And I will go so far as to say of God's favorites. Seems almost offensive to our ears in our egalitarian age that God would have favorites. How can God play favorites? Yeah, but his favorites have nothing commendable in themselves. It is, they're utterly undeserving. And if God chooses to choose you <laughs> If God chooses you to make you one of his elect, if he chooses to make you one of his favorites, it's not because of anything in you. It is because of his free grace, his generosity to the undeserving. But that's just it. The elect are the objects of God's special discriminating love. As I've said many times, used the analogy many times, my love for my wife is a special and discriminating love that discriminates against all other women. And if it wasn't that kind of a love, uh, you'd be wanting to get me fired, I think, right? rightly. Right? Yes, that, you, can, you can plan to get me fired, if that's what happens. And so this, at the end of the age, is the ingathering of the elect. It's one of the key features of the end of the ages. But we have to be clear, this election and the fruition of it, the realization of it, the revealing of the elect is a dividing. Because there are others who show in that revealing, they show that they have not been elected. So, for example, in verse 38, they are like those at the time of the flood who were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. By the way, Jesus believes in the flood. He believes in Noah's flood. Right there. I don't care what you think about it. Jesus believes in it. So I'll go with Jesus. And in this instance, the wicked are literally goners. They're goners. They're taken away. The wicked are taken away. Or, looked at verse 40. The two men in a field. One will be taken and one left. The one, one taken is taken away in the context. He's taken away in the flood of judgment. Those left behind are the believers. Now, if you caught that phrase, left behind, it's very much unlike the movies and the books, where those left behind are not believers in Jesus Christ. So you you just got to be clear about what this text is saying. No, those taken away are taken away in a flood of judgment. Or as we saw already with the wicked servant in verse 48, he's the one who beats his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master's delayed. Don't care. But what becomes of those people who cast off the accountability of the master, who ignore God's claim on them, they will not be gathered in with the elect verse 50 the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth that's Jesus speaking right if you didn't catch that, those are, those are the words of Christ in red. It's all the word of God. But this comes from the speech of Jesus himself in his earthly ministry. Never think that for all the gentleness and grace and compassion that Jesus has, that somehow he will ignore all the rebellion, sin, and blasphemy. But when knowing that he's not going to ignore all that, than to see his compassion, to see his gentleness and the free offer of the gospel. Oh, how compassionate is this shepherd? How compassionate is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? I've just scratched the surface. I've got to bring it to a close, but I just I want us to consider just two things by way of application. The first is, just to repeat, is we need to expect the unexpected. Jesus is coming back, and so we ought to be faithful in our service. But I would just encourage you in this simple thought experiment. How would I live if I knew Jesus was coming back tonight? Would it change the sin you're indulging in? Would it change the choices you're making? Would it change how you speak to people? Would it change what you're prioritizing? We need to expect the unexpected. The fact is, because like, what we do is this mental thing, we say, yeah, but of course he's not coming back tonight. How do you know? You don't know. You actually do not know. The Father knows. Angels in heaven don't even know you don't know need to expect the unexpected as we expect the return of Christ but secondly i think the real priority here not only in being faithful the second is to promote the gospel and proclaim the gospel throughout the whole world and and i'm just going to tell you friends we had the friday night event guys talking about missions I see it everywhere. Missions is drying up. We're going to consign millions of people to a Christless eternity because we're fussing around with our own stuff and we can't think beyond our own temporal interests. And yet, God promises that the gospel will be proclaimed, but he uses means. He uses the means of people that are motivated with the soon return of Christ. Christ. And many, many missionaries, many pastors have been raised up, many Christian workers, many Christians have gone out heralding the gospel, encouraging the gospel, supporting the gospel, being on mission for the gospel because they know Christ is coming soon. The window is there. Seize the day. Take this gift of a day, of your life, of your time, talents, treasure, in order to advance the gospel. There's a lot of other stuff we can advance. Now, I'm the first one to be tempted by all the interests, all the advocacy, all the movements that can be advanced. But the gospel is the one that puts people out of hell into heaven. What else is more important? And the trouble is, we we just don't really believe it. We suffer from unbelief. We don't think it's that important. We think other things are important because we're told to think they're important. They're not as important. So I just exhort you from Calgary to Lagos to London, from St. John's to Stockholm, it doesn't matter. Let us be expectant people on mission, on mission, as then we look, expecting the unexpected, we look for the return of the King. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I ask that you would stir us. Oh, Lord, give us faith. Help us to believe. Forgive us for our unbelief. We believe. Help our unbelief and help us to believe that Jesus Christ, your only Son, is returning again to judge the living and the dead. Help us to live in view of that. Grant us to be faithful in so doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise as we respond in worship together. My benediction comes from Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We might not want to believe that, but we need to repent of our unbelief. Because if there is no lake of fire, then there is no book of life. Today, I urge you, look to Jesus Christ, that you would know your name is written, written down forever in the book of life. Be sure to look to Christ today. Go in peace. You're dismissed.